from the Battleborn Broadcast Center. It's Cofield and Company. Howden guides it towards center. It's Kessel coming ahead. Kessel closes in towards the net. He shoots. He scores. Phil Kessel, goal 400 in consecutive game 990. His first strike as a member of the Golden Knights. Drops it off for Theodore, skating up top. Back to the left, Stevenson accelerates at the left dot, slings it in front, they score! Mark Stone, the backdoor tap-in for two Golden Knights. 5.45 to go in the third period. And someone hit the goal horn. It's time for Cofield and Company with Steve Cofield on ESPN Las Vegas. All right, here we go. Cofield and company here on a Wednesday. Candy is the company. Ari's back in the Finley Toyota Studios hosting the show today at the Battleborn Broadcast Center. Battleborn Injury Lawyers will bring in ESPN Las Vegas legal insider Justin Watkins in just a little bit. That'll be in the 4 o'clock hour. Let's get to it. It's the three on Cofield and Company. Top stories at three. A lot of NFL today. We'll have uh, some Raiders stuff. We've got some trades around the National Football League. Want to get to VGK, the Golden Knights, out to this great start. Entertaining game last night. That's coming up in five minutes. But I know Candy is a hockey fan, but he's also an NBA fan. And, man, for an early season game, Candy, the Suns and... The Warriors had a lot of heat. We'll get to Clay Thompson and, and what you think all of that meant by getting ejected. But I just wanted to talk about the energy in the game and how the Suns came out ready to punch the Warriors in the face. And I don't mean that because, you know, Jordan Poole got knocked out by Draymond Green. But the Warriors tend to be bullies. And I think the Suns came out last night and they're like, no, no, no. Let's, let's start from the get-go here early in the season. You're not going to push us around. No, they're absolutely not going to get punked. And I think the Suns look at the Warriors as a wounded animal right now. You look at everything they went through in the preseason, and you have the opportunity to go out there at this point of the season when the Warriors clearly are still in some turmoil and get one on them that they're going to remember. And they shove them around in a way that they're absolutely going to remember come later in the year. Why do you think the Warriors are a wounded animal? Well, Jordan Poole is clearly wounded by being knocked in the face by Draymond Green. I think this organization is in a period of transition that it might well figure out by the end of the year, right? We might well figure out old guys versus new guys by the end of this season, but I don't think we've done that yet. And I think you see what Draymond Green is going through. You see what Klay Thompson is going through. It's all part of this transition that is happening within the Warriors right now. That's why this is such a weird season for Golden State because you kind of have a conflict that even without the punch, you would have been looking at and saying, who other than Steph Curry is really in charge of this team now? And it always has been, oh, well, it's the old guys. Well, you know what? When Jordan Poole is outplaying everyone on the floor not named Steph Curry, that's hard to keep up. Well, and the organization also put their, their faith, their future faith in Jordan Poole, that was the message they sent. And that's what they would have done anyway, regardless of the KO punch. I'll ask you, for anyone who doesn't kind of understand, you know, chemistry and working through this, the transition from, you know, all the old guys to mixing in the young guys, uh, but also coming back from this stupid incident that was all created by Draymond Green in spite of the fact that he put some video out last week that was bizarro that made him look like he was some triumphant hero who'd overcome some adversity that was put in front of him. 
if Ari had punched you in the face three weeks ago and, and knocked you down, would you be cool coming in today? Like, you know, you know, you're not in with us every day. You know, three shows later, are you coming in today? And you're like, yeah, all's cool. Yeah, we talked it out. Well, really, we didn't talk it out, but he said sorry. So we're good. I'm going to have to challenge that assumption right from the jump. What are the odds, do you think, that Ari could punch me in the face and knock me down? Like, what what superhuman Popeye strength do you think Ari came up with that he's going to be able to – was it a sucker punch? Did I never? Did I not see it coming? Could be a sucker Because otherwise, punch. there's no way I'm buying in on this. Yeah, could be a sucker punch. Could be – could be an uppercut. I mean, let, let's play pretend then. I get your point. All right, we'll play. You, we'll, want to shame, we'll, you don't want to shame yourself. No, I, I, don't want that on, I don't want that on record that anyone yes, could ever yes, come back yes, later yes. and say, Adam admitted Ari could well, knock him out with one punch. Yeah. But we do, that we, means, I was going to say, we do, know, we do know there's a good chance because his name was mentioned on the air that this will be a promo. And the anything that was kind of hypothetical in this will be snipped out. And it'll yeah. sound like this really mm-hmm. happened that you got knocked out. Yeah. Well, Look I, for that tomorrow. Yeah. Jo- occupational hazard that I guess I'll have to live with. No, I'm not coming back in at that point to stand there with Ari and be like, kumbaya, y'all, we got a job to do, right? Right? Like, no, absolutely not. And no regular workplace would be like that. No regular workplace would slap Ari with a little fine on the wrist and say, hey, bud, you don't do that again, but come on back in the studio and let's start running the show. No. Ari's going to be out on his bony little butt, and we're going to be going back to the show with, I don't know, some sort of other board monkey doing it. The other thing I find fascinating is how the league manages the Draymond Green continued violent action. You know, it's one thing to, you know, break wrist and kick guys in the nuts and, you know, get ejected and harass the officials to the point where they have to really allow, like, seven techs a game uh, in, a, in a given game before they actually tech him twice and throw him out. I mean, the leeway for Draymond Green was ridiculous a year ago. And then the other part of it is how the other team operates. And I would – I might not tell everyone about the plan, but I would 100% walk on the floor as the opposition, and I would have a couple of guys, and their job is, in the right spots, to go with Draymond. Let's test this a little bit. Let's see what the league is going to do. Let's see how the team is going to react. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's gamesmanship. He put himself in this position over the years. So it would be part of my game plan. And if it's if you look at it like, hey, it's early in the season, it's not worth it right now. I can tell you when the playoffs come, if he's in the rotation, even if he's playing 25 minutes a game, I am testing his temper and I am testing the patience of the officials with this guy. Cofield, it's not Draymond Green I'm going after. You go after Draymond Green if you want to go after a six-point-a-game scorer and get him out of there. But after last night, I've seen that Klay Thompson can be had. And if Klay Thompson, who has the reputation as the most chill guy among this whole crowd, is the one that I can go after and the one I can get riled up, I would much rather have even this injured, compromised Klay Thompson from going through what he's gone through with all the surgeries. I want him out of the game. Because otherwise, if Draymond Green's on the floor, I get to keep playing four on five at the defensive end. That, to me, is way more valuable. As an aspiring official, and for folks who don't know, Adam Candy's done a lot of officiating, you know, trying to move up the chain. If you're calling a game, well, this one, you know, had the energy of a, you know, an April or May game. But if you're calling games, you're officiating games with Draymond Green involved. Are you officiating the game a little bit differently from a physicality standpoint? Has the, do you think the league has told officials 
that, hey, this year is different. This guy, you know, has proven to have, you know, a real violent streak in him. Because I thought it was really interesting when Draymond Green tried to pull one of those bullcrap moves that a lot of players in basketball, you know, sort of from the world of soccer, try to pull where Draymond Green just sort of slides up at the top of the key and just stands in the way of DeAndre Ayton. Ayton hits him. He goes down. You can actually see him pull Ayton down with him to accentuate the entire act. And I just wonder how the league is going to handle stuff like this when, hey, listen, you've had to suspend the guy multiple times. The team that just watched him in practice knock out a teammate did nothing about it. Is the league going to treat this sort of action, especially with him, differently? It's going to be really difficult for the officials to go after Draymond differently based on something that happened in a practice video. Like You can't look at it any differently than you have in the past. I think you look at it as... This is a player who we have to have eyes on at all times. Right? That's the kind of thing that you pregame as officials when you're in the locker room. When you're in, going in before a game and you know which two teams that you have and you know what sets of players that you have, the things that you remind yourself of are, okay, we need to make sure that we're not letting anything start before it gets ugly, right? Those are the things when you hear the announcers say, oh, they always get the second guy. Well, it's the official's job to get the first guy. That's that's the whole idea. Like, And you know that a guy like Draymond is going to be involved in a lot of situations where he could be the first guy. But could anybody do what Draymond does, pulling the jersey? Absolutely he could. He could be – look, I remember being in high school practice with, uh, with our good friend um, Robert Smith. And Robert teaching us in practice how Reggie Theus – back on their teams, used to be the guy that pulled the jersey in once the offensive player got close to help draw the charge. This isn't new. This isn't new stuff that goes on, and the officials can certainly be fooled by it. So, you know, that's the sort of thing that they're watching for. Here's uh, DeAndre Ayton on the physicality of the game. You know, teams don't like that when you keep hitting hitting people over and over, especially to the legal limit. People get frustrated and they complain to us, and the game got a little junky, but we stayed here, and I was really proud of that. That shows a lot of growth. Because last year, I think we would have kept going back and forth throughout that throughout that game right there. That was one of those games where them dudes wanted us to go back and forward. And it's especially important for DeAndre Aiden to recognize something like that because he was emotional at times last year, basically took himself out of favor with Monty Williams. So the fact that he's getting it at a young age, and uh, I'm guessing around the league that a lot of teams are going to play the Warriors a little bit differently. And now the template's been set. If Clay Thompson's going to freaking flip out, then all right, it's all fair game. Let's go after him. All right, last night for the Golden Knights was impressive in the third period. I want to go through some of the goals here, and we'll uh, get your take on the third period. They moved to 6-2. and two. Um, Quick start in the third. They went into it down 2-1, and here comes Theodore. Smith trying to change that. Put it on goal. Reimer made a save, but the puck was just sitting behind him. Now a right point shot. They score. Theodore skipped it through. Vegas ties it. Theodore's second of the season. And the Knights, a minute into the third period, have made this a brand new hockey game. I thought the Sharks actually played pretty decently from there for about the next 10 minutes. They were very much in the game because there were also times watching the game that the Sharks were, I thought, kind of listless. And I think some of that's the building. Boy, that building has become just a freaking morgue. You know, those of us from the Northeast remember Sports Talk Radio dude. Steve Summers always calling, and he he was kind of joking about it, but the the Nassau mausoleum, right? And it was, you know... uh, it was, a, it was a joke. It wasn't always quiet there, but it had become quieter over the years because the uh, Islanders just weren't as good as they used to be. 
man, that place is hard to get charged up. And where have the fans gone, Candy? Where have the where are the Sharks fans anymore? Uh, the Sharks fans are looking at a team that's two and seven and saying we got plenty of other options in the Bay Area on any given night than going out to a San Jose Sharks game. So that's why the Golden Knights have to have to have third periods like they just did because. We know that this is a team that is going to be a fringy playoff team if everything goes the way that they want it to. And so if they can be that team that they were in the third period and take care of the opponents they're supposed to, then they're going to be exactly where they want to be, which is going into the playoffs with a chance to make noise. Like I said, I thought the Sharks uh, played pretty decently for about the next eight or ten minutes, but then got a little sloppy, a giveaway, quick transition, and here's Wild Bill. Smith to Carlson through the center logo. Cuts left into the zone. Carlson shoots. He scores! William Carlson zips it in. Vegas takes a 3-2 lead. Carlson scores his third goal of the season. Shades of misfit days there. Carlson and, you know, Duva's calling the live action. If you watched it over again, man, the move at the center circle was just absolute destruction, and then the placement of the shot was awesome. Man, old Wild Bill would help this team so much. It might be the single biggest thing among the top six. That, well, top nine, depending on where Carlson is playing these days. But it might be the one determining factor for the Golden Knights. If William Carlson goes back anywhere near 40-plus goal William Carlson, that's an unexpected boost for the scoring in this team. And we talk about the depth, right? We talk so much about, well, they're a Stars and Scrubs kind of team. Well, William Carlson's kind of the one guy who lives between that right now. And if he elevates more towards Stars and Scrub, that is a huge boost. And the Sharks didn't recover. They lost their focus and played uh, kind of El Garbajo defense here against Stone, who was also very heads up to get near the net for the finish. Drops it off for Theodore, skating up top. Back to the left. Stevenson accelerates at the left dot. Slings it in front. They score! Mark Stone, the backdoor tap-in for two Golden Knights. 5.45 to go in the third period. And someone hit the goal horn. Check that. 5.45. Who hit the goal horn? Yeah. 5.45 left. And... Then the Sharks go empty net for about four minutes and two seconds. And I thought they barely threatened. And in fact, Eichel probably could have put the game away even further because uh, he kind of whiffed on a shot with the empty net. But their uh, their defense in those final four minutes was really good. A lot of block shots. So good victory. Good victory. Like you said, you know, th- this is the kind of game they would lose last year. And they lost way too many of these games. You go on the road. Team's playing like crap. You're the better team. You don't seize the opportunity. You don't win the game. They're doing it this time around. It's early, but they're doing it. No, they absolutely are. And again, we go back to talking about the goaltending and they have gotten the goaltending that they need early on in the year. They have gotten what they have to have. Join Cofield and company on Thursdays for the live 2-5 to show at Silver 7's Hotel and Casino. During all NFL games this season, get 77-cent beers. It's Thursday Night Football at Silver 7's Flamingo in Paradise. Now, back to Cofield and company. Now a run. This will make him feel not so much better. This is broken off by Courtney Reese. Reese still on his feet. Can he get there? Inside the five, he goes. Finally shoved to the ground by Brandon Joseph, who is chasing him down. And this one is blocked. A free runner shot through Isaiah Foskey. Got his hand on the football. He's been hungry for a play. NBC with the call there is Collinsworth, Jack Collinsworth, Chris's kid, along with Jason Garrett. Boy, that's a 
That's an interesting broadcast, and thanks to NBC for the audio before I lay into Jack Collinsworth. Uh, I'm going to throw this out there. Watching the ESPN uh, hockey broadcast last night of VGK, better broad, uh, better play-by-play person, Jack Collinsworth or Leah Hextall? Oh, loaded question, Cofield. Oh, wow. I, uh, thought, you, I thought you would jump to Hextall immediately. Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm. Go- you remember the old show Double Dare? Yeah. You know, D- Double Dare, where you could either answer the question or take the physical challenge. Like <laughs> I'm taking the. I'm taking the physical challenge. Like send send me into the gauntlet right now. Get me slimed. Like I. I would rather just take the physical challenge than okay. go down this road. Now I'm wondering why. I think this is a bad thing that you want to take the physical challenge. Okay, so if I go down the road with Jack Collinsworth and call it nepotism. Then right. people would be like, oh, yeah, oh, you just don't, oh, you wish you had the job. If I go down the road with Leah Hextall, there's not a word I can say that anybody is going to look at and think it isn't just being sexist. But what, what so is that? I, isn't that? Isn't that completely unfair to Leah Hextall? In the end, I don't really enjoy the game broadcast that either one of them puts out. How about okay. that? I will say, and I have objective on this because I think, listen, my one of my top three choices for Raiders radio along with Dan Duva, was Beth Mowens. Beth is really good. Mm-hmm. Male or female, you should be able to grade people in terms of enjoyability, delivering the message, being clear. Um, on the hockey game, I thought Leah did a good job. I, I, I don't know what the right word is. I don't feel like she's forceful enough. When I actually, when I turned it on in the third period, I actually thought it was an alternate broadcast because it was like her level seemed lower than the color voice. Um, and I have no problem saying that it's not a, it's not a sexist thing. Just like I'm not judging. Listen, there are plenty of fall, you know, far from dad's tree, you know, fall real close to dad's tree and get jobs around whatever college football. Listen, Noah Eagle at 25 years old has a lot of plum gigs. I think he's okay. Uh, I think Joe Buck is, I know people are going to hate this, but he's probably an all timer, at least for this era. You know, he, he got a benefit from having his dad, Jack in the booth for a long time. It's not all about nepotism. It was, I, I just, with Jack Collinsworth, I just, I didn't feel a kind of a presence. And the other thing is, you know, and it's funny, I'll, I'll take you behind the curtain real quick here. We're going to talk to uh, Caleb Herring about the Notre Dame experience. The radio guy for Notre Dame came over and was talking to us a little bit while we were in the broadcast booth, the visitor's broadcast booth. And this happens, you know this, you know, you exchange information because that person's an insider. You're not on Notre Dame and vice versa. So Paul Burmeister came over and he was talking to us and he seems like a nice guy and he played college football. He's in, yeah, I haven't had a chance to hear them on radio much came over and it's funny. I heard a conversation. This is really behind the curtain, right? I was listening to uh, someone who was connected as a Notre Dame fan was kind of complaining about who got the radio job, right? I don't know if Burmeister is good or not. I'll have to check it out. I'm sure he's, he's a pretty experienced broadcaster, but radio play-by-play is a little bit different than everything else. You know this candy versus doing TV. Uh, and TV play-by-play is different. Um, so I'll just leave it at that. I thought I think both need to improve. I don't want their jobs. I'm not a play-by-play guy. I'm just judging it as a listener or a viewer. Um, I just thought they were both okay. My, so I, I don't really see the the strength in Jack Collinsworth there. Maybe they're trying him in different spots like he does the backup as the Sunday night football on the field guy, and they try him right. with Peacock with play-by-play and figure out where his spot is. 
my issue last year in the playoffs with Leah Hextall's call on play-by-plays, I didn't get enough description of of what was happening. And, yeah. she, and does, she does get quiet, like awfully quick when she's doing the game. And I was like, well, maybe she's getting out of the way for the color voice who, you know, they've told her, hey, you know, this is the star of the show. By the way, that that whole Burmeister thing, I kind of lost where I was going there. The reason I mentioned it is that someone was complaining that he got the job. The, these Notre Dame jobs are gigantic jobs. Um, and I don't know that it should be a, a crew that's brand new to broadcasting on both fronts. Like if there was a Jason Garrett's in there, if there was a super experienced analyst or, an, a, I mean, I would think as a Notre Dame person, you'd want some Notre Dame people broadcasting. It doesn't have to be if there's no one qualified, but that was what kind of caught me. I was like, wow, um, there must be some Notre Dame people who were like, why did NBC do this? And why did our radio network do this? Like you said, the, there's a big difference between TV and play by play. And I think part of the problem with all of these situations is you've got people that they're putting into Swiss Army knife roles, right? We've seen Leah Hextall do rink, ringside reporting. We've seen Jack Collinsworth do all different types of jobs. It's not one size fits all. Whoever the person is, give them a chance to succeed in the one thing that they're trying to do well, right? I'll tell you from experience. Doing radio play-by-play and doing sports talk radio are completely different animals. <laughs> completely. Yes. You can't yes. think that you're going to be great at both doing both at the same time. There are very few people who could pull that off. Very few. Yes, I will take up for the sports talk radio side. There is, there's a little more of an art to this than you'd actually believe and the, the daily prep and all that. But we can uh, do that hardcore stuff on a maybe another channel someday or do a podcast about it. On the way back, let's get into the experience for a UNLV football at Notre Dame. Um, they have a bye week this week, so we're not going to go uh, crushing on UNLV football. I do want to get into what's going on in the NFL. A lot of inexperienced quarterbacks, decisions coming up here. P.J. Walker, what's going on? Uh, that was in the Panthers. Uh, and what's going on with the Patriots? And is it going to be zappy? It sounds like it's going to be Mac. Want the skinny on UNLV football? Listen to the weekly UNLV All Access podcast with Cofield and Caleb Herring. A new episode drops each Thursday morning at UNLV All Access on Twitter. Honestly, it's three of them. Number seven is a pretty good player. We've got film on both in this system and this offense with this play caller. So we're going to study hard on the things that they do, you know, with each guy. And really, regardless of who it is, it's still the same explosive offense, close to the top of the league in scoring. I mean, you name it, they're fairly high up there. It's a big challenge to try to limit some of that production. And, you know, we're going to see if we can take a shot at it on Sunday. Former UNLV quarterback and current voice of the Rebels on radio, Caleb Herring is live right now on Cofield and Company. Let's bring in Caleb. It's Cofield. It's Candy. It's Cofield and Company. A lot of C's going on. Caleb! What's up? What's up? The triple C effect. What's up? Yeah, I you swear you, you read my mind. I was like, we have, we have to rename this block of the show. Uh, triple C's when uh, <laughs> Candy is on. So the other day on Monday, Willie Ramirez was kind of grilling me on the Notre Dame experience. And I'll, I'll fill people in if they didn't listen on Monday. What I said about Notre Dame and being at that football stadium and walking around the campus briefly. Um, you had never been there before. What do you think of the stadium, the crowd, and the surroundings of Notre Dame Stadium? That surroundings one was like the the hard part to to feel about. Um, the campus, I think, it's what I would expect from a campus of, of such a historic and prestigious nature, right? Like I, when I think about college football, that's the venue I see. That's the venue I think about 
kind of what I was raised on as far as the stadium goes. Um, the crowd actually was a, a good turnout, I think. And it was it was fun to to be in that arena with a full stadium. Um, it wasn't a sellout, but it was homecoming. The crowd came out. They were very supportive, very loud, um, rooted hard. Um, Saturday afternoon football is, is like I said, it's how you remember football growing up. So there's a little bit of nostalgia there for me. Seeing things like touchdown Jesus and and walking through campus and seeing the the athletic con what is, I would call it a compound where all the sports are kind of on campus and um, you really get a different college environment I think than um, schools today have with like I said the history the brick walls everywhere the the themed uh, color scheme all of that stuff was great on campus now South Bend I was warned was not the happiest place on earth it was not the 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 biggest downtown scene or anything like that. So there's something left to be desired. I'll say it that way. But Notre Dame was, as an experience, the little that we got of it was fun. It was a fun time for me as a college football fan to, to be there and, and to enjoy that stadium. It was it was awesome. There's some things that are very different. I, I, I would say this as a uh, to peel back the curtain a little bit for the press box. They had attendance everywhere. Um, and I don't know if you may know that, but it, that was like the first time that had ever happened to me where there's people like being trained <laughs> on how to welcome the media to the press box and, yeah. and what, and ushers on the elevator. And, um, they were all in suits and it was like matching theme suits. It was like getting onto a fancy airline. Like there's stewardess <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. So it, that was new. That was one of those things I was like, huh, I didn't expect that, but I guess at Notre Dame, that's a thing. Uh, you mentioned the size of the crowd. It was big. I mean, even though it wasn't a sellout, the place holds like 77. Do you think the crowd got to UNLV, especially on the punt blocks? That is a possibility. I think there's always going to be energy swings in the game um, and emotions are up and down. We, we know that it's well documented. But when the crowd is as uh, thunderous as it is, there is definitely some added energy to those momentum swings I, for better or for worse. Um, the deafening silence of hushing them up as we heard. Um, you know, 77,000 people sit on their hands after Courtney Reese's 74-yard yard run and the Rebels, you know, come within 7 to 10 at that point. That silence gives you a little bit more energy on your side like, to, to, to shut the crowd up. Um, but I definitely think that crowd side, that's the, that's the biggest crowd I can think that UNLV, I, I think Ohio State was probably close um, um, as far as the actual attendance. Um, so I think that was the biggest crowd that this Rebel team under Coach Roy has seen. And that's that's saying something. I mean, they, they went from zero in the stands, basically, uh, during the COVID year uh, to, to now going into Notre Dame with 70,000 plus in attendance on a homecoming, locked in and engaged and, and really rooting for their Irish to, to, to come home with some wins here in the middle of the season. So uh, I, I definitely think it had an impact on how the Rebels nerves maybe uh, unfolded as the game went on. Where's the coolest place you played and what do you remember about it? Hands down, the coolest place I played was Camp Randall. Um, and I say that not just because of um, it was my first start collegiately. So there was some added emotion there for me. Um, but I and they were ranked, I think, number five at the time in the nation. Thursday Night Football, nationally televised. Um, I think that was the first time I walked into a college stadium and they had the sky cam going over the top of the field. And there was something about that to me that was just so cool. Um, but the most exciting part about it, unfortunately, is came after we got thumped by them, was the jump around. That it's one of those those famous things that you hear a lot about. Like I said, growing up, and then all of a sudden you're sitting there. The scoreboard doesn't say what you wanted to say, but you know it's coming. And during the fourth quarter break, during the media timeout, the entire uh, home crowd just starts to jump around with the song "Jump Around" playing in the background to start the fourth quarter. And it's a it's an unreal experience. It was great. It was awesome. 
unfortunately I was getting stomped in and it was my first start and it was not going the way I wanted it to, but I remember it distinctly. That was, that was a really cool moment for me. Yeah. For those who are not familiar talking about uh, the atmosphere in Madtown in Wisconsin, uh, where they certainly know how to put on a show, no matter what the status of the team is at the time, Caleb, as you look forward here, for UNLV, obviously the last three weeks have not looked like what uh, Marcus Royal would like them to, but really all the opportunities that were going to be there for UNLV in terms of making a bowl and making some noise in the division race are still right there in front of them. How do you get the focus back on that after what the last few weeks have been like? Well, I think you have to take a realistic approach. I think, first of all, you, if you're Coach Arroyo, it's not going badly necessarily because you're not able to compete better or weren't able to win some of those games, you're not healthy. And I think that is a message that without saying it, with the way that the injuries have stacked up for UNLV at this point of the season, without having to say it, Coach Arroyo can have that as a message. The players can look around and know we're missing guys, like very important guys, um, and we're playing some really good teams. Um, um, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of that realistic approach is the fact that we knew coming in, everybody who pays attention to UNLV football – Coach Roy himself, the players, could have looked at the schedule before the season and understood that this stretch of games, starting with Air Force to the point we are now, and with San Diego State, Fresno State, with all the preseason predictions, that stretch of games was a gauntlet to begin with. And add to that, you're going into that gauntlet, literally started that gauntlet with your starting quarterback down, uh, your top defensive lineman down, one of the down, a depleted secondary from what you thought it would be coming into the season, a depleted wide receiver room from what you thought it would be coming into the season. Add all that to the gauntlet, and you're just literally hoping you would survive that to begin with. That's a realistic approach. Um, so I think, like you said, coming out of this, they still have everything in front of them. Bowl game, two games away from that, postseason eligibility. Um, the conference, due to the way everybody started in the Mountain West, kind of a slow start, um, there's still a, a mixed pot of who's going to come out of this race on top. Um, so I, I think there's still opportunity. It's all still out there. That has to be the messaging. Get healthy, obviously, but finish the season strong. And that, that's why coming out of the gate four and one to start the season was so important for this year's team. It was important to get off to a fast start, take care of the non-conference schedule, do as much as you could to, to win the games you're supposed to so that coming down the stretch when wins maybe get a little tougher to come across, um, you, you have a better chance coming out with you know all your postseason or preseason goals still intact. Caleb Herring's with us, former quarterback at UNLV, is on uh, the radio covering the Rebels as the analyst does the UNLV All Access podcast. We drop that tomorrow. And one of the things I wanted to get into is where the backup quarterback situation is from here. I think Doug Brumfield is going to be back for the San Diego State game. It's pretty fascinating, and this is why I like PFF, because you see a lot of stuff where you're like, hmm, I hadn't thought of that. I wonder what they look at. Well, with quarterbacks, they look at a lot of different factors, and – I think fans will be shocked to see that PFF actually had Cam Friel rated ahead of Harrison Bailey. What did you see in the game that might have dropped Bailey down a little bit? Well, I think the value of the misses, I think he had. And I think, uh, you know, completion percentage-wise, they weren't that different. Uh, 9 for 18 for Harrison and 8 for 15 for Cam. Um, so not too far off, I guess, from that. But I think... Harrison's misses were more consequential on his on his plays that he made or the throws that he attempted. There was one that sticks out in my mind that was for a touchdown. It was a the, the, the route was open, it was there, and he overthrew it by, you know, five, six yards. 
and it ended up not being not being a touchdown that I think the Rebels could have obviously used at that juncture in the game. Um, Cam didn't have that kind of miss. I don't know how PFF grades, you know, the value of incomplete passes, um, but there that I think maybe been a factor. I also think that during Cam Frill's time on the field, there was a crucial, critical mistake that was nothing to do with him, which was the fumble by Ricky White after a nice completion, actually, by Cam Frill that was moving them into scoring territory. So the the overall feel of the game at that point while Cam Frill was in may have been less, uh, or, you know, less energetic. Um, but the mistakes, as far as the numbers and PFF ratings go, you couldn't necessarily hoist the weight of that on Cam individually for what the UNLV offense was going through in that first half. Um, and then on top of that, going back to Harrison, the the energy level for UNLV because of some of the plays he made, the fourth down scramble on fourth and two to keep a drive alive and eventually score a touchdown seemed miraculous. And the energy of it was like uh, it being in the stadium, actually watching. It was a huge momentum swing. I don't know how you value that on a PFF scale. I'm, I'm not that master right. of it. Right. Right. right and right. then after it's a six yard run for a touchdown, we. We see that we feel the energy, but it doesn't line up with the numbers. And there's that's kind of the spirit of the game. And that may open up another analytics debate with people. And <laughs> because th- there is a, such a thing to feeling the energy of a game, but it doesn't necessarily reflect on the statue. And I think that's maybe could account for the difference. I don't know if it's just the mathematical anomaly. I think that's how they would describe it of of this new analytical data. But um, I, I felt like Harrison played well, and my eyes weren't lying to me. I know he missed, but I, you could clearly feel the offense moved and produced more while Harrison got his time. PFF just didn't grade it that way. Yeah, I think it's really interesting on on analytics and how you grade games because you could also look at Harrison Bailey scrambling as what happened before the scramble, like you know, just you know, missing three guys in the progression. You should have never had to scramble. The scrambles were also a little bit weird. They were kind of tough guy scrambles with some missed tackles and people were bouncing off them. They were bizarre, which brings us to rating quarterbacks in general. So it looks like Bill Belichick's ready to move forward with Mac Jones. Now, most Patriot fans are like, what? Bailey Zappi has been great. But if you break down the film, I wonder if the Patriot staff is like, hey, you know what? Zappi's making some throws in spite of, you know, playing poorly in some spots. You got to wonder what they're thinking and analyzing these two quarterbacks. Yeah, you, it absolutely makes you wonder. And it, it also makes you wonder if they figured something out with the backup in that maybe helps Mac when he comes back. So maybe what they were trying to do with Mac Jones and the offensive structure they were trying to do, by nature of their hands being forced to go to their backup with injury, they had to alter and tweak their offense and maybe even simplify things um, and enhance other areas of their game. Like uh, it's one of the things was Mac Jones was only under center once in his time while Zappi was able to be under center, heavy play action during his minutes. The offense looked completely different. Um, and that's, I think we've seen that in the NFL again with the Cowboys situation. When Dak Prescott went down and everybody thought it was the end for the Cowboys, the Cowboys offensively made the adjustment to highlight and utilize more of their weapons around the quarterback instead of being so quarterback-centric. And because of that, their offense actually performed better as a whole. The quarterback numbers weren't gaudy. It wasn't impressive by the actual quarterback. But then when Dak came back, they stuck with very similar, not all the way, but they stuck with a similar game plan with Dak. That could be what happens in New England in the same token. Zappi may have performed well. He got the win, um, and he I, he didn't reach Cooper Rush levels where guys were talking about he should be the starter and Dak should just take his time coming back and you know give this guy a contract type stuff. Zappi didn't get that kind of hype, but he may have revealed enough to the Patriots where they figured out, okay, 
our offense can work like this. Our personnel is suited better for this. Now, when you insert Mac Jones, who they feel is probably the better quarterback, the offense will be enhanced that much more with just the talent on the field. I think that may be the case. And that's that's one of those situations as a backup. That's a part of your job. Like you have to be able to function as a starter um, and fit into the system and give information, whether it's directly or through your play, to what the offense can do when the starter gets back and how the team can be better for it. So you learn a lot about your team. And I think that's what the Patriots are doing here and giving Mac Jones his opportunity with this newfound structure and system that worked for Zappi. Quarterbacks changing elsewhere, Caleb, as Matt Ryan gets benched in Indianapolis for Sam Ellinger, who has never thrown a pro pass. And I'm curious about this part of it. They talked to Ryan Kelly, the center for the Colts, and he said this. Everybody's got their own opinions about it. I'm not going to get into mine, but certainly I think everybody's a little bit surprised. So it is what it is. So I'm curious from your perspective what a quarterback change can do to a locker room in terms of, yeah, maybe the new guy galvanizes things like Zappy did, but it certainly sounds like, at least from that one player's perspective in Indianapolis, this isn't welcomed by everyone. That is, it's different in every locker room. And remember, I was a part of this situation on the backup quarterback side where I came in and it galvanized the locker room. And part of that had to do with the results of that, um, of that win when I took the starting job. But I understand how it can galvanize. And I also understand how it can be a detriment to the team as well. From that statement that you said, from a very important piece of the puzzle, right? The center. That's probably the biggest relationship, the, the, the tightest relationship that you have on your team is the quarterback center um, relationship on the offense. For that to be the statement, I'll say this. First of all, when you say I won't give my opinion on something in a corporate or any work setting, when you say that, it's because your opinion isn't in line with the organizational opinion. And that's what I gathered from that statement. If you don't want to say it, it's because it's not in line. If you were in step with how you felt about what the organization did, you'd have no problem giving your opinion. But to avoid the illusion or the perception of uh, dissension, you say, I don't, I, I don't want to give my opinion. That's number one. So I think it definitely can splinter the locker room when the locker room doesn't believe yet in the guy that's taking the starter's job. Um, and there is shock. There is you know, adjustments that have to be made when you make that change. Um, and the last thing you want is for people to not be on board with the adjustment. And that's potentially what it sounds like. I know Matt Ryan made some statements also saying he was shocked and surprised about the decision. So this wasn't something that uh, was thought about as going into the season, we're going to have you pass the torch. It's like, hey, no, you're getting benched. And and that's a difficult thing to overcome for from for the starter guy. And then also for the rest of the team. We, we built some sort of belief in this starter. And now switching and benching the guy sort of seems like throwing in the towel on whatever we were trying to build before. Um, and that's the risky run. And it sounds like there's some inklings of that um, in the Colts locker room. And that's the worry when you make a move like that, especially middle of the season. Caleb, great spot, man. Talk to you later tonight as we uh, do our UNLV All Access podcast that drops on Thursday mornings. Uh, talk to you later in the day. Thank you. All right. Have a good one, guys. Caleb Herring, former quarterback at UNLV, our football insider on Wednesdays coming up. Is this really inside information? Did this really happen? Plane ride, Broncos, to Europe, and Russ was going full Russ. Seriously? Join Cofield and company on Fridays for the 3-6 to six show at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar. There's nothing like a football Friday at Treasure Island.
There is a policy in place that officials are not allowed to get autographs. They can secure autographs for, like, charitable causes and all that, but there's a system for that. They have to go through the league's officiating office. You cannot walk up to a player and ask him for his autograph. It looks bad, and it is against the rules. So the league is looking into it. If that is what happens in this video, which, again, is what it looks like. Hanging at the Battleborn Broadcast Center, it's Cofield and Company. Yeah, we got more clarity on this from uh, Tom Pelissaro. We talked about it yesterday for a couple of minutes on Cofield and Company. Not an autograph, not an autograph, but does it matter? Something was written on the paper. We know it was about golf. We'll talk about the uh, refs and the NFL a little later in the show during the grab bag. I saw early today people were getting all worked out, uh, worked up, not worked out, worked up about a story from Russell Wilson. It wasn't from him directly until we found the audio. So, But the story was out that Russell Wilson was doing uh, calisthenics, and and I'm not going to say acting like a fool. He was doing what he thinks he needed to do to get ready for the game coming up after missing a game with a hamstring, but it really irked you about airplane behavior. It irked me on so many levels, Cofield. I don't even know which level to start with. Uh, first of all, Let's just make clear, Russell Wilson on the eight-hour flight over to London for the uh, Jaguars-Broncos game this week claims that he spent half of the flight working out, uh, that while guys were getting sleep, he was doing high knees in the aisles. Just picture this for a second. Just picture any (laughs) Southwest flight that you've been on that some Yahoo gets up and starts doing this crap. Come on now. All right. You want Russ to talk about it? You want Russ to tell you what's up? Let Russ tell you what's up. You know, I've traveled enough to, to get, you know, kind of get my system down. For the first two hours, I was watching the film. And then for the next four hours, I was doing treatment on the plane. I was walking up and down the aisles. Everybody was knocked out. I was doing high knees and working on my, working on my legs and everything else, you know, making sure I'm ready to rock. I've got my secrets. i got my movements and then uh, tons of water. It always helps. I appreciate you guys. Let's go Broncos. Let's ride. Yeah. All right. There it is. There, confidence has been restored. Yeah. Let's ride. And let me tell you, as someone who's had hamstring injuries, the idea of doing high knees on a plane sounds horrible. It sounds like I'm going to blow my hamstring out again. But just remember, last year when Russ had injured his thumb, he did tell us he was rehabbing 19 or 20 hours a day. So maybe you just have to be able to work out on the plane to get your 19 or 20 hours a day in. You goober. You absolute goober. 